Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, uh, our sermon text for this morning. Um, <clears throat> last week we started a new sermon series exploring this book of First Peter. So last Sunday was our first sermon in this series, and we are... God willing, going to work our way through this relatively small book, five chapters, um, one kind of passage, paragraph at a time. And you might recall last week that I pointed out that Peter, the author of this book, is writing to Christians, to believers who had been undergoing some suffering and pressure because of the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. They lived in a culture that was hostile and contrary to what they held most dear. And I pointed out that that is actually very similar to the culture in which we find ourselves as Christians here in the United States in the year 2014, that we live in a culture that seems to be increasingly hostile to the things that we hold dear. So there's a lot of similarities between the audience of First Peter and us as an audience uh, reading this book today. And I made the point that what Peter is intending to do in this book is this. Peter's purpose in this book is to equip God's people with hope as they walk through a world that is hostile to the gospel. So that's the purpose of the entire book of First Peter. So every sermon that we go through probably will take somewhere around 16 or 17 sermons to get through the book. Every sermon is going to be um, proclaimed through this lens of Peter's attempt to give hope to God's people. Now this morning what we're going to do is pay special attention to that word in the middle of that sentence, that word hope. Today we're going to be thinking about hope. Now, I don't think I have to spend a lot of time making the case that hope is a very important and very desirable thing. I mean, we, we all want hope. Uh, powerful things can happen when people have hope. Uh, for instance, here's Martin Luther. He says everything that is done in this world is done by hope. Everything that's accomplished in this world begins, to some degree, with hopefulness. Uh, here's uh, Christopher Reeve, the popular actor who suffered an accident that landed him in a wheelchair and was able to overcome a lot of the obstacles that faced him. He said, once you choose hope, anything's possible. Hope is a little bit like blood. If it's flowing through your body, you're alive. But if it stops flowing through your body, you're dead. Or, or almost dead. There could be some of you this morning that are here feeling pretty hopeless about something. Maybe you're feeling hopeless about a job that you're in. Seems like a dead-end job. You can't get out of it. You hate going to work every day. Maybe you have a recurring or persistent illness that is causing hopelessness to set in. Maybe it's the aging process on your body causing you to lose hope. Maybe it's 
a marriage that seems to be beyond repair. Maybe it's a friendship that seems to be beyond repair. Maybe, again, it's the culture in which we live. You watch the news, as uh, Adam reminded us at the start of this service. You look at the news, and it just seems like there's a lot to be hopeless about. Maybe that's been bringing you down, and you're discouraged, and you're in despair. And so you might be asking this question, is there really any reason to have hope in this world? I mean, it is a bleak world, isn't it? Hard things happen. And maybe you're wondering, where, is there really reason to have hope? You know, because not everybody thinks there is. Here's um, Frederick Nietzsche, famous philosopher. He says, hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs the torments of man. But all hope really does is just keep you going through a miserable existence. It's just prolonging a horrible life. That's what hope does for you. Here's a William Provine. He's a, an American scientist. He says, there's no hope whatsoever of there being any deep meaning to human life. We live, we die, and we're gone. We're absolutely gone when we die. This is the way a lot of people look at life. It's a hopeless endeavor. Certainly in the absence of any kind of God, it's a natural consequence to think in this way, hopelessness. So, friends, is there reason for us to hope? If you are a Christian today, I want you to know that the answer is yes. There is a solid, tangible, real hope for you. And Peter talks about this here in verse 3. If you want to look down into the text, and again, uh, if you have a Bible, it will be very important for you to have it open to this passage. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in the back corner. It might be a little difficult to get back there, but in the back corner there, there's a bookshelf with some Bibles. I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles so you can follow along. But here's uh, verse 3, and it says, according to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. You and I as Christians have a living hope, and what Peter is going to unpack for us here is the doctrinal foundation of that hope. You might remember last week I said what Peter does throughout this book is he alternates back and forth between doctrine and duties. So he'll give us some pretty heavy doctrine for a while, and then he'll move to some very practical applications. Well, we're still in an introductory doctrinal study or um, development here that Peter is giving us. And he explains to us that there is a hope that is anchored in the past that can continue in the present and then live on in the future. So that's what we're going to look at, those three things this morning. So this living hope presented to us in 1 Peter is, first of all, anchored in the past. And we see this in two different ways. Peter tells us that this hope anchored in the past is, first of all, anchored in your personal past. So if you look back to verse 3, notice he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Do you see that phrase? He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. This hope comes from the fact that you, Christian, in your past have been born again. Now, this phrase, born again, is what I'm going to say this morning the most important thing that happens in the universe. 
when a soul is regenerated, that's a theological term that's used for this, when the Holy Spirit is sent to give to a spiritually dead person spiritual life, when the Holy Spirit takes someone's rocky, hard heart and softens it and turns it into flesh, when the Holy Spirit turns a person who has no interest in Jesus and no interest in the kingdom of God and changes that person's affections in the direction of the gospel, that there is nothing more important in the world that happens than that. It's more important than who gets in the White House during the next election. It's more important than climate change. It's more important than who wins the next Super Bowl. The most important thing happening in the world is the work of the Holy Spirit doing what is described here, causing people to be born again. I mean, it's an absolute miracle that people are born again of the Spirit. What this means is that there are people who have no interest in Jesus. They have no long-term consideration of eternal life. They don't want to repent of their sins. They have no interest in the Bible. They have no interest in humbling themselves before God and before other people. And then suddenly something happens. The Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person and their whole orientation toward life changes. They have new affections. They have new passions. They have new interests. They have new goals. That's what it is to be born again. And what Peter is saying here is if you are a Christian, you've been born again. And if you haven't been born again, you're not a Christian. If you haven't been born again, you're not. This, this is what happens to Christians. This is how God makes people Christians. He causes them to be born again. Now, you might be resisting a little bit this, this phrase, you know, born again, because let, let's just acknowledge it. It is, I don't know, it's kind of a churchy phrase, isn't it? And sometimes people link the term born again with being some kind of hardcore fundamentalist. I, mean, I remember a conversation I had with a a friend of mine, I was actually talking to his wife, and we were talking about what it is to be a Christian. And she said, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not one of those born-again types. And she was reacting to some negative impression she had about what it is to be born again, suggesting that it's possible to be a Christian, but not to be a born-again type Christian. What Peter is saying here is if you're a Christian, you're born again. And what Jesus says in John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, a very religious man, an outwardly very good man, a man who would have every reason to look to himself and think, hey, I'm acceptable to God because of how good I am. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, if you're not born again, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. You must be born again. So has that happened to you, friends? Notice I'm asking, has it happened to you? Isn't it interesting that in this passage, it says, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. This is something that God does. This is not something we do. It's something that happens to you. So you might be asking, I don't know, am I born again? Sounds like this is pretty serious. Well, it is. Here's just a few questions you can ask to determine if you've been born again. One, do you have some measure of sorrow for your sin against God? Some measure of sorrow. Have you 
found Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross and his shed blood and his resurrection, have you found that sufficient for you to get into heaven, to cover your sins, to make you right with God? Is, is Jesus in some measure attractive and beautiful to you? And then lastly, do you have some desire in your heart to, to follow Jesus, to obey him, and to submit your life to him. I'm not saying are you doing this perfectly. I'm not saying are you doing this all the time. I'm saying is there some kind of desire in your heart toward these things? Then that's real good evidence that you've been born again. And so Peter's giving hope here. He's saying here's something that you can hang on to, something that God did in your heart in the past, regenerating you, making you new, spiritually new. But it's not just that. There is also something that's happened in the historical past that Peter is giving as a reason for us to be hopeful. And what is that? Well, it's the source of this power to be born again. If you look at verse 3 again, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's through this power where there was a Messiah, a Savior, who was crucified, laid in a tomb, completely dead, and he was risen from the dead in new life, a bodily, glorious resurrection. resurrection. The power that was obtained in that resurrection is the power through which you and I, when we believe in Jesus, are born again. So it would go like this. We want to kind of back up and get a bird's eye view of the whole plan of salvation. Here's, here's the way it works. The Father, from before the foundation of the world, has his elect. Remember, we learned about that last Sunday in verse 1. It says, to those who are elect exiles. So the Father has his elect. He then sends his Son, comes into the world in the person of his Son, to die and be resurrected for the elect. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to open eyes and soften hearts to receive this Savior as sufficient for the salvation of their souls. That's, that's the way this kind of flows through history. And so you'll see these categories in this passage. The elect, being born again by the Spirit, but central to it all is this resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, one reason this is so significant, particularly as Peter is trying to give hope to his readers, is because he's writing in a cultural time, during a time when the Greco-Roman culture prevailed. He's writing during a culture that was extremely pessimistic and bleak, a, a culture that really had no hope whatsoever. In fact, you might know one of these uh, Greek mythological figures named Oedipus who said this, said the best thing is to not even be born. The second best thing is to die at birth. That was a typical Greco-Roman outlook. Life is so miserable, it's so hard, it's so sad that it's just better that we're not even born or if we're not born to be dead at birth. Into that comes this proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus. Now I want to suggest that that kind of bleak pessimistic view is not entirely foreign to views that are held in our own culture. And I noticed this yesterday. We went out and we had lunch and we were driving down Jackson Street, and we crossed McKinley, just south of the university, and I saw this, and I just had to go back and take a picture of it. So 
Um, here's at the stoplight, McKinley and Jackson. This graffiti, we live to die. Pretty hopeless outlook. We just live this life, we just wait till the day we die, and when we die, it's all over. There's nothing else to hope for. This is so contrary to the gospel, so contrary to the Christian view. Here this person is saying, we live to die. In Jesus, we have a Savior who died to live and offers that anyone who trusts in him would also live even beyond the grave. This is the hope we have. This is the living hope that Peter is talking about. It's anchored in the past through what the Holy Spirit has done in causing you to be born again and through what Jesus has done in the past in his resurrection from the dead. As Christians, friends, we ought to be people who are hopeful. We ought to be characterized by hope. I'm not saying we don't get depressed. I'm not saying we don't fall into despair. I'm not saying we don't have seasons where we're down and we're struggling. Of course, that's true. But eventually, what ought to bubble to the surface for the Christian is an attitude of hope. This guy named Ed Welch, he says, if you are perpetually a hopeless person, particularly to Christians, if you are a Christian and you're perpetually hopeless, here's what's happening. He says, you say that you believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, but you live as if he's still in the grave. That's why you're so hopeless. Hopelessness, hopelessness in the end is simply a denial of the resurrection. I, I don't mean it's you come out and you're a heretic and you're saying the resurrection didn't happen. I'm saying when hopelessness prevails in your life, you're living as if the resurrection didn't happen. So Peter is encouraging us. You've got reason to be hopeful because of these things that have happened in your past. Okay. Secondly, our hope continues in the present. It's something that can be very real for us right now. First of all, it continues on earth. It continues in our earthly existence. Peter here is, is very realistic. He has just talked to us about the ecstasy of the resurrection, but he realizes that the ecstasy of the resurrection does not remove the agony of life on this earth. Because again, this is a broken world. It's a hard world in which to live. And so Peter makes mention of this in verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of verse, beginning of verse 6 there, he's saying, for a little while, there, there are trials in your life. There are troubles that have entered into your life. And there is an emotional response that you're having to these trials. It's one of, of grief. So you're, you're bothered in your heart by these trials that have been happening. And this is where hope gets its most fierce test. Because it's easy to be hopeful, isn't it? when everything is going really well. It's when things aren't going so well that hope has its most impressive place in one's life. You know, to use a sports analogy, if you're playing on a team and 
you have a comfortable lead in a basketball game, for instance, and the seconds are ticking away, and you say, you know, I, I, I have hope that we might win this game. Nobody's very impressed by that, right? You're ahead. You have a comfortable lead. The game's almost over. Of course you're going to win. Who cares if you're hopeful? Anybody would be hopeful in that situation. It's, it's the person who, when your team is behind and the seconds are ticking away, and the person stands up and says, you know what? We can win this game. And they step up and they do something about it. Do you remember what Reggie Miller did for the Indiana Pacers back in the 1990s? The Pacers were down six points with nine seconds left to the New York Knicks. Now, you wouldn't be surprised if the Knicks at that point had hope, but you would be surprised if any of the Pacers had hope. But Reggie Miller had hope. <laughs> Reggie Miller stepped forward. He scored eight points in nine seconds, and the Pacers won the game. That's an impressive display of hope. Hope is impressive. Hope shows its strength when things are down. This is what Chesterton says, a British writer. He says, hope means hoping when all things are hopeless or it is no virtue at all. It is only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. So how does Peter find hope here in the midst of trials? Well, he goes on. I read it in verse 7. He says, for a while you've been grieved by these trials, but in verse 7, Peter says, there's a reason for the trials that you're enduring. And he goes on to explain this reason. We'll talk about that in a moment. But this is just so important. This is so essential for every trouble, for every difficulty, for every crisis that happens in your life to know that there is some kind of divine purpose for why that's happening. And, and here's why that's so important. I showed you last Sunday this picture of a, a bus in London, England, and on the side of this bus is this sign, and it says, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. So this is an atheist group, and they're trying to promote their message, and so they rented these signs on the sides of these buses. Well, last week I was reading this book, and I, I came across this author who started discussing th this very thing. And the book is called uh, Unapologetic, and uh, the author uh, starts to comment on, on this sign. And what he says is, is this. He says, you know, what's really curious about this sign is that last phrase, enjoy your life. So the message is, you know, if there's a God, you're probably not going to enjoy your life. But if we don't think there's a God, then, then you can enjoy your life. So don't worry about God and just enjoy your life. But what's assumed in that phrase is that you have a life to be enjoyed, that you have a life that has the potential to be enjoyed, that there are things happening in your life that are good and positive and happy and upbeat. But the author in this book says, what, what about people whose lives are not so enjoyable? What, what about people who are in wheelchairs and they're health is deteriorating? What about people who are lonely? What about people who are languishing in prison? What about people who are on their hospital bed and they're, they're dying and they're struggling to breathe? What about those people? You're going to go to them and say, hey, there's no God. Enjoy your life. 
you're not going to, what that is, is a cruel thing to say to somebody who's suffering. And what the writer in the book says is what this sign basically says is there is no help coming for you. And he describes it as, as a denial of hope. That's what this sign is, a denial of hope. To people who have healthy, happy, luxurious, profitable lives, then maybe that makes some sense. But that, that doesn't describe everybody, maybe not even most people in this world. What Peter here is giving us is something different. He's giving us a reason to be hopeful, even in the midst of our trials. He points out here that God is doing something. So that's what he says here in verse 7. He says, here's what's happening. In your trials, there's a purpose, and it's so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's what Peter's saying here. He's saying, He's comparing your faith to gold. And here's what would happen. You, to get the purest form of a precious metal like gold, you would put it in a furnace, and the furnace would burn away all of the impurities so that what would be left was the purest form of that metal. And so what Peter is saying here is that when you go th through troubles and trials and difficulties, that's what God is doing. He's putting you through the furnace so that the impurities that are distorting and corrupting your faith can be burned away so that what is left over is a genuine display of your faith that is the most important thing that anybody can have, even more important than gold, because he says the gold is something that perishes. But once the gold is out of the way, what is left over is a faith that will result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, you're not getting any praise and honor and glory in this culture, in this life, for your faith in Jesus. You're scorned. You're alienated. You're put aside. You're looked at as a self-righteous bigot. That's the way the world looks at you for being a Christian. But what Peter is saying is that through those trials and difficulties, your faith will end up being exalted and will get this praise and glory that it will be honored before all the world as all the impurities are burned away. Trials, troubles, difficulties, they have a purpose. Phony faith fades away in the midst of trouble. Genuine faith is preserved and shown to be the real thing. Well, that's what's going on on earth. Your faith, your hope continues in the present as you battle trials on earth. But our hope also continues in heaven because you know what's going on? While you're fighting all your battles, while you're struggling with all your trials, while you're dealing with all your difficulties, you know what God is doing? He in heaven is guarding and protecting your faith. Look at verse 5. Verse 4 talks about this inheritance that's coming to us, and it says in verse 5, we, by God's faith, are being guarded. We're being shielded through faith for salvation. If you look at the end of uh, verse 4, it's this inheritance. It's being kept in heaven for you. God is committed to you much more than you're committed to him. And he is guarding and protecting your faith. Do you remember 
I'm guessing Peter's probably speaking from personal experience here, because you, you might remember in Luke uh, 22, I think it is, Luke 22, yeah, Jesus speaks to Peter, comes to talk to Peter, and says, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. And do you remember what Jesus went on to say? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That's what Jesus does for us. That's what God does for us. He's interceding. He's preserving. He's sustaining. He's protecting your faith, even in the midst of trouble. The Bible goes on in many places to support this. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement? Isn't it so great that Peter doesn't say here, listen, when you go through trials and difficulties, I just hope you have the strength to stand up to the pressure. And I just hope that you don't start wobbling and getting, you know, your, your, I just hope your faith doesn't start getting flimsy. You just better watch out. I mean, God will save you if you come to him, but, you know, if you don't keep it up, if you don't keep it up, if you don't keep obeying, if you don't do the best you can, he might revoke that salvation from you. He might cast you off. What kind of hope is there in that message? And yet, that, that, that's what, what some Christians believe, that salvation can be lost in that way. What Peter's telling us is that that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen, Christian. You don't have to worry about that. God is preserving you. God is protecting you. God is sustaining you. God is praying through the Son that your faith would not fail. So that, that's reason for hope, isn't it? <laughs> for hope in the present. And then lastly, Peter goes on to talk about a hope that will be completed in the future. Our hope will be completed in the future. Uh, verse 1, we talked about this last week. Peter writes to these exiles, he says, and um, we pointed out last week what that means, that Christians in Peter's day and Christians today are basically spiritual exiles on this earth. We're like strangers in a strange land. We're people who feel out of place. Our values tend to clash with the values of our world. And as this increases, we begin to realize that there's not as much to be gained in this world maybe as, as we thought. And in fact, when we become a Christian and we live for Jesus, there's actually a lot to lose. I mean, maybe you have experienced this to some degree. You're a Christian. Maybe you weren't a Christian. Now you are, and you're finding that friends that you had in the past aren't quite as friendly as they used to be. Or you find at your workplace that conversations tend to go in directions that you feel uncomfortable participating in. You might find in family gatherings that people seem to kind of look down their nose at you. They, they won't give you the time that they, they used to. You, you feel alienated. You feel separated. If you're a student on Ball State's campus or if you're a teacher or professor at Ball State, you, you might know what that feels like. You are learning things maybe that seem contrary to what you believe or you're hearing things, uh, you're, you're maybe putting, uh, receiving pressure to teach things that are contrary to, to what you believe. I mean, we know this happens very often with 
people from other religions, Muslims and Hindus, who become Christians, and they end up being disowned by their family. They end up being rejected by their friends. See, Peter knows that this is a possibility for the people to whom he's writing. He knows that the inheritance that some people are hoping for in this world might be lost. And so what he does is he offers them a different kind of inheritance. He offers them a better inheritance. If you look in verse 4, we're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's grace are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So that's why I'm saying this is completed in the future. The last time is the day when Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, we are going to possess the fullness of our inheritance. But we haven't received that yet. We're kind of in between. So again, if we go back to the plan of salvation, we have the Father. He plans salvation for his elect. He sends Jesus to die for his elect and to be resurrected for them. Then he sends the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to cause us to be born again, to bring us to faith in his Son. And then in the meantime, between the time that we're born again and the time that Jesus comes again, we're basically doing what Peter talks about here in verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. That, that, that's where we are right now. We don't see Jesus. He's not walking on the earth before us, but we believe in him. We place our faith in him. We follow him nonetheless until that last day, until Jesus comes again, and then the fullness of our inheritance is given to us. And so in the meantime, we're, we're waiting with that assurance that this hope is going to come to its full fruition. And Peter describes what this inheritance is like. He uses these three words. He says, number one, our inheritance is imperishable. It's imperishable. That means it's untouched by decay or death. You know, things in this world die, right? I mean, flowers die, and gardens die, and people die, and pets die, and friendships die, and churches die, and nations die. But Peter's talking about an inheritance that will never die. It's not subject to the curse of death in this world. But it's not just imperishable, it's undefiled, he says also. That means it's untouched by, by evil, by impurity. Do you remember the Enron scandal back in 2001? Um, where this very profitable company, it was revealed, was practicing a lot of deceit, and the company ended up filing bankruptcy, filing for bankruptcy, and it turns out that like 20,000 employees ended up losing a good portion of their inheritance as a result of the, the wickedness and the deceit and the immorality of the people who were in charge. What Peter's saying here is we have an inheritance that is not going to be touched by that. This inheritance that is being offered to us by Jesus is beyond that. No immorality, no wickedness, no evil is going to steal it from us. And then lastly, he says this hope is, or this inheritance is, unfading. 
that is untouched by, by age or, or by time. It doesn't run its course. It doesn't, it doesn't get old. You know, we live in a world in which things expire all the time, right? You know, you buy a new computer and you get a tech service agreement and certainly just, you know, as soon as your computer goes wrong, that's about the time the tech service agreement has run out, right? That's the way the warranties work. On, on your car, you get a warranty, but the warranty doesn't last forever. It, it, it runs out. It expires. Our pizza coupons expire. Memberships and organizations, they, they expire. You have them for a while, but, but they end. Peter's saying this is an inheritance that isn't going to fade away. It's not going to expire. It's not going to end. There's nothing that's going to interrupt it or cut it off or take it from you. This is the hope that Peter's giving us for the future, this inheritance that we will receive. Now, you might be thinking, well, what is this inheritance? What is it? What is it that I'm going to get? Well, do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, something very simple. I think you're all familiar with this phrase. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. That's what you and I as Christians stand to inherit. We are going to inherit. When Jesus comes again at the last day, we're going to inherit a renewed and glorified earth where all disease, all pain, all sorrow, all anguish, all hopelessness, all despair, all depression is vanquished, where death is never more anything that anyone would need to be concerned about, where all of our fellowship with one another is restored perfectly, where we have a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, where everything broken in the world is fixed, where every injustice is made right. It's going to be a perfect state of affairs on a glorified new earth, and it will never end, and that's what you and I have to inherit when our hope finds its completion at the coming of Jesus. Friends, that's, that's good news. That is something to look forward to. We ought to be, as Christians, always forward-looking people, looking ahead to this promise that is un imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. So, friends, let me close by just asking you, what, what to what, or to whom, are you looking for hope in this life? What are you clinging to? What is it that you're relying upon to just elate your spirit? What are you depending upon to make your day? What is it? This catechism question will answer that question for us, and so here's, here's how we're going to end. We're just going to read this together. It's the first question from the Heidelberg Catechism, and I've taken the liberty to change the word comfort to hope. The question is actually, what is your only comfort? But we're going to change this to, what is your only hope in life and death? So, friends, let's read this together. Brothers and sisters, what is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. God in heaven, we thank you for giving us in Jesus a living hope. Help us to be hopeful people in light of this precious truth. In Jesus' name, amen.